Hello, Survivor. It's so glad to be back with you again today. The, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be taking a focus on caregiving. So if you're a survivor, I still want you to hear these messages because you likely have somebody that's supporting you in your life. But November is caregiving month. So I wanted to highlight a couple episodes on caregiving. So the guest I have today is really awesome. Daniela Marchik is a board certified professional, professional counselor and caregiver consultant. She completed grad school while working at a geriatric activity day center. According to recent research, 17 to 35% of family caregivers rate their health between fair to poor. She also talked about on the podcast how caregiving impacted her when she cared for her grandmother who lived with Alzheimer's for 15 years. She has a passion for supporting caregivers, and it really comes through in our conversation. So when you listen to it, I think we were vibing off of just wanting to serve caregivers and, for me, of course, TBI and concussion folks, and how it's critical, in my opinion, that I look at the whole family system that's supporting the injured person, you, and also the caregiver, because you both need each other for healing. And so it's a really rich conversation that we have. If you do happen to be a caregiver, Daniela talks about a group that she has coming out for other caregivers. So certainly check that out. It'll be in the show notes, which are in your podcast player. You can also access that at tbitherapist.com. Speaking of resources, I I think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I'm now licensed to provide telehealth services in 34 states. So if you're thinking you may want therapy yourself as a survivor, a concussion or other brain injury survivor, I would love to support you in a counseling capacity. So reach out and I'm hinting as well. I do have a group that's coming in January. And just let me tell you, I believe in the power of groups because I know one of the biggest problems that I face working with survivors is isolation, feeling alone, that no one gets it. And while I feel like I have a a deep understanding of the emotional components of brain injury and how alone it feels for my survivors because I've sat with that pain, There is nothing more powerful than when survivors gather. And so I wanted to create a psychotherapy group where people could engage in therapy together, get support together. And I think you guys learned some of the greatest tips from each other. So I wanted to facilitate a healing space for concussion survivors. So that is coming out in January. The page for that for booking a consult for the group will be up soon. So either one of those, you can still book a consult with me if you're interested in any of that. So that's at tbitherapist.com and you get right to me. So that call you're booking with me and we can talk about what your needs are. As well, I don't talk about this as often, but I might talk more about it, about um, neuro coaching that I do for leaders and professionals. So if you're a leader or professional and you want to maximize your brain functioning, I have also just tailored and customized coaching for you. So those are my offers I wanted to talk to you about. Let's get right to the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the TBI Therapist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jen Blanchett. 
where we explore the heart of brain injury. Hi, Daniela. Welcome to the TBI Therapist Podcast. It's so great to have you today. Thank you, Jen. I'm honored to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Great. So I'm going to kick it off to you. It's a little bit different this week because we're talking about caregiving. And I'm going to ask you the story of your caregiving journey. Thank you. Yes, I have been in and around working with caregivers for the past couple of decades. I really became interested in caregiving when I stepped into a secondary caregiving role for my grandmother who had Alzheimer's disease for 15 years. I ended up living with her and my grandfather for a couple of years during that time. It was still pretty early on, so I didn't need to do a lot of hands-on needs, but definitely watched how it impacted their relationship and also watched my mom and her siblings as they had to make some really major decisions about my grandmother. And so I was there luckily being able to support my mom as well. I decided to move to the Northwest for love and trees and got a job at an assisted living where I was working on the development fundraising team, but was so interested in working with the individuals that I switched over to the activities team. And I was at the adult day program in which people, elders, and many people who had different forms of dementia uh, would come in for respite for four to six hours. And we would do activities such as physical movement and singing. And um, I really loved working with them. But And at one point I had a participant come in and she was really upset. She's like, my daughter yelled at me and I don't know why. And so her and I um, stepped away. We did some deep breathing exercises, tried to calm down. And with dementia, often you want to then distract but she kept returning to it all day. And she could not remember the content of why her daughter was mad at her, but she could remember that her, she could remember the emotion, the, the emotional impact of it. And so in that moment was a really big lesson for me of, oh, we really need to support the emotional health of our caregivers so that they can stay calm and they can really be the type of caregivers that they are trying to be because people do the caregiving role out of love ideally, and sometimes dedication and no choice, but still really out of dedication. And so I have always been interested in becoming a therapist. And so I combined those two by going to grad school and got a certificate in gerontology and a master's in counseling. And I have been working with elders and caregivers as a therapist ever since. Yeah. Wow. That's exciting to hear like your journey and and what that looked like. And it really does sound like, I love that you went to the Northwest for, for love and trees, by the way, I just, that's, I feel like that's a tagline. (laughs) (laughs) And coffee. Yeah. I could definitely be on a camper van. Yeah. I feel the same anyway for like the Northeast living in Maine, growing Mm -hmm. up in the DC Metro a little bit. So if, uh, people, there's people that listen to this podcast that are not from the U.S. So I always think about that. They're like, what are they talking about? So it's just different areas of the U.S. that I'm talking about. But yes, also this very this nature of- oriented, I believe, at least for me, I was drawn to be able to have access to nature. Mm. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. It's very much a a nature kind of haven here where I am. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And just hearing the story of kind of caregiving, which I think is a labor of love, certainly, but is inherently taxing and can be can be difficult at the same time. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to maybe some themes that you notice from caregivers and maybe what support they might need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one, thank you for asking that question. There are some very common things about caregivers. There is not enough time in the day to do all the tasks and it is a lot to manage your loved ones, medical appointments, medications, other aspects of care, as well as your own life. And currently um, in the United States with the AARP statistics of in 2020, the people who are caring for someone over 50, there's 54 million individuals and 61% of them are working at the same time. And so one thing that is very real is that there's just not enough time and the desire to be caring for your loved one is not something you can check off the list. There's there's always more one could do. We could be eating more. We could be doing more exercise, both for ourselves and for the person we're caring for. So co- with that comes for some people, if they don't really sit and be with their own expectations and reality is a lot of guilt. The most common mm-hmm experience um, outside of sadness and grief that I experience with caregivers is the sense of guilt. Am I doing it enough? Am I doing it right? I feel guilty leaving my loved one at home because they may not be able to participate in society in the same way they did before they may have had a brain injury. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, as you're talking, I'm, uh, you know, part of me is just kind of re- feeling that in a way just through the lens of the felt sense that I feel when I sit with caregivers mm-hmm. uh, times when I've had them sit with me alone in the therapy room mm-hmm. and just check in with them because they're really struggling. You know, the, the focus is on for this audience, you know, the injured person, the person with the concussion or the TBI not so much on the person that's providing care to that person and that person deeply needs care and support. So I often in my therapy practice, will see people together, either partners together or family members together, the caregiver comes in and I find that really a nice process for them because they're, they're also, you know, absorbing some of those skills that we're talking about for emotional regulation, for nervous system reset, Yes. Because they're going through their own process and absolutely. And they don't yeah. stop to, to care for themselves a lot mm-hmm. of times. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an adjustment, right? What they thought their life was going to be like. Maybe it's a partnership or a relationship with a parent, and all of a sudden, a uh, traumatic brain injury occurs and they have to let go of what they expected life to be like. And and embrace the the new. And it's hard to accept that sometimes. It's hard to accept that my mom won't be the grandma that I wanted her to be to my kids or that my partner and I won't be able to travel in retirement like we had 
anticipated or dreamed about together. And so sometimes, as you said, I've also sat down with families together and, and we've had to do some grief work around mm-hmm. letting those expectations or those desires go and acknowledging together that this is hard on, on everyone and figuring out, and of course have how to better communicate um, amongst everyone's needs and that both people's needs are important and that if, if done thoughtfully and, and that everyone's needs can also be met. Yes. Yes. And I I like you just, I'm listening to that part about grief because I find that that's so important to the work that I do with survivors. And also I've seen it with caregivers too. And when both people are trying to get their emotional needs met, sometimes those needs can be conflicting. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that negotiates. And physical Mm -hmm. needs too. Right. As well. And mm -hmm. So I I think it's hard, especially I would say in the initial phases of recovery or the initial, I know you've worked with folks with dementia, so that probably looks different because sometimes with, with TBI, there's like an initial shock and like things are really intense for a while and then they tend to level off. And I don't know if you notice a similar process with, you know, folks who are struggling with dementia. Yeah. Um, and it's my understanding with, with brain injuries is that that first year is really telling about how much recovery is available to, to the individual. And so that there is a lot of effort within that first six months of year to, to do as much rehab as as possible, but then there comes this time where we have to accept where the body has landed in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is that similar initial shock that happens with caregivers and dementia, though since it's a slower process, there is often times a caregiver will start doing small things for their loved one and not really notice that they're doing more for their loved one or or compensating for some of the changes and then often something might happen whether that's a fall or their loved one gets lost or um, they get sick and so they end up going to a medical appointment and they get this new information and um, we call that a turning point where all of a sudden Mm -hmm. we're thinking that we're caregivers and then all of a sudden we're becoming caregivers. And then there's this shock of, Oh my gosh, this is happening a little bit of a level of, okay, now what? And then there's this acceptance of the role of, and doing some deep diving and learning of what does this mean for me as an individual to become a caregiver? What does this mean for our family? Um, And then I actually, uh, have created an eight-stage developmental stage model that I'm basically discussing right here around what is a traditional ca- caregiver path in that way of that that shock, acceptance, living the role. And then often there's another turning point in which, um, at least for the elders, and this may not be applicable for TBI folks because it's not a progressive thing like it is for our, our aging love can be, but for our aging loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And those, and the caregiving journey, as, as I said, with my grandmother was 15 years. And so 
it's really important to figure out what those nourishment activities are for the caregivers and so that they can continue to to be in the role yeah in a way that they want to mhm yeah yeah i think that i like that you're talking about you know you're seeing different like patterns and stages for caregivers mm-hmm. of things that typically happen and I'm sure that those initial phases sound like congruent with what I hear for, you know, the Absolutely. caregivers of someone from with a TBI and every TBI is very different. So yeah. some people remain caregivers for a loved one for indefinitely for right. that, that loved one and others, mm-hmm. it does change and grow with, with gaining capacity of the injured person. Mm-hmm. And then that, that's a different, I would say that's a different turning point for the caregiver of right. relinquishing that caregiving role or mm-hmm. toggling back on that caregiving role because, right. you know, it's like I had to hold all these things together and now I have to figure out, okay, they're, they're starting to be able to go out on their own and they're driving now or mm-hmm. not driving. So it, then it becomes these murky waters, I think, for the caregiver to figure out, hmm, like what, what's my role now? And then that can exactly. be a, a hard process for them to negotiate and a different role mm-hmm. shift again. Yes, exactly. And that is actually part of our model. And it, and I hadn't thought about it this way, We, but we had talked about it more of, of when someone either moves into an assisted living or the, a disease prog- progresses so much that they end up going towards hospice or that the, that the actual day-to-day task of caregiving sort of... Um, is taken out of your hands in some way, whether that's because the individual with TBI is starting to be more independent again, or, or an individual is moving into a, a community or headed to uh, towards their death. But all of a sudden, you've had your identity as as a as a caregiver for so long that mm. a real part of the work that I like to do with caregivers is who am I now? Because you're not going to go back to the person you were six months, three years ago, 15 years ago, before you were in this caregiver journey, because it's such a deeply impactful experience that you're a changed person. And so how do we embrace those lessons, deepen our sense of compassion, and recognize the choice we have in our identity as we turn back into community? Yeah. yeah, that's really good. I'm just, I'm just soaking all that in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking for folks, you know, caregivers, for those with a TBI, you know, what they might, you know, how they might see themselves or even find space for, for just them. Cause yeah. that's what I find that I'm trying to help them look at. Okay. Where's even if it's a small space, because I get okay. if the if the needs of, of the caregiving is, are very intense, then they're not going to feel like they can take that space, right? Find right. space for themselves. So, do you have any ways that you help facilitate people to find that? Yeah, thank you for saying that. And you know, a lot of people don't understand the caregiving experience until they brush up into it, whether they're caring for a loved one or they're watching their best friend do it, but really just how time intensive it can be. And where is that space? If I need to be physically present near them um, often. And so 
I really appreciate that because it's so important for caregivers to find that space. So whether that is spending five extra minutes in the bathroom when you go to the bathroom and splashing some water on your face and really being in awareness around washing your hands, feeling the water, taking some breaths, looking in the mirror and saying, I'm proud of you. I know you're trying your hardest right now and really taking a moment to look at yourself and and recognize um, the hard work you're doing. Um, and what I have found that a lot of resources out there that for caregivers is really um, a to share a lot of information about what their loved one is going through or what they may expect um, the disease prognosis to look like. And mm-hmm. that is so important because it shares a lot of the the resources available. But what I haven't seen a lot of is the support for the emotional experience that is caregiving, that is a fear of death that comes with, with whether that's a TBI, I could have lost my loved one or mm-hmm. dealing with, um, not dealing with getting the opportunity to take care of an elderly parent who is, or heading towards their death, that it's really emotional. You, you, you brush against this mortality. We talked about guilt. We talked about grief. There's anger and resentment and there's sadness. There's a whole range, the whole range of human emotion while trying to manage yours and someone else's need. And so what I have found is that there's not enough intentional space for the emotional well-being of caregivers taught by someone who really understands what that journey is. So, cause I often get people who come into my practice who we, I was working with a therapist, but she had no idea what the caregiving experience was, was. So I ended up having to just tell her what I'm doing and why it's impactful. And that is yet another exhausting emotional labor. And so I have created a six week program called the calm, compassionate, connected caregiver in which, uh, in the six weeks, we look at two different emotions and we learn about the physiology of them. We talk about how they show up in the caregiving experience with a group of others so that you feel that sense of community leaving with others who are also caregivers to support each other and walk away with some, some real actionable steps and items to what do I do when my anger comes up? How do I deal with it in the moment when I can't deal with it in the moment because I'm caring for my loved one? And how do I deal with it in that quiet moment uh, before bed so I can be with this emotion rather than unfortunately what we see a lot of is if if we aren't with those big emotions and starting to understand them people tend to turn to numbing mechanisms such as drinking or overeating or uh, under eating over exercising alcohol drugs and so i really want to support these caregivers so they don't feel like they need to turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms as they navigate Mm -hmm. this challenge in life. Yeah. I think that that program sounds so needed and I don't know really anything like it that's out there (laughs) anywhere in the interwebs or otherwise. So I think Mm -hmm. it's really important or, you know, I've seen very kind of focused and, you know, information, but not really a lot of community building or you know, ways to kind of connect with other caregivers. Because I think yeah. a lot of people are just so isolated in their 
their own spaces with their loved one that they don't, they can't even see to come out of that space that it's okay because they're the default, um, right. the default caregiver. So I have to, I just have to do these things. Right. I have to be there. Mm-hmm. If I'm not there, then who is? And I don't want my loved one to be in danger. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So this program, not only is it teaches you and takes away those tools, we also have an, um, an hour of just the sort of traditional support group uh, processing so that people can talk about what they're witnessing and what their loved one is, uh, what they need help with supporting their loved one. But the the majority of the program is really for the, the therapist to have permission to focus on, on their well-being. Mm. Which is hard to do because we we care give out of love. Yeah. So yeah. can you can you talk a little bit? I don't know if you in your program do you talk about compassion fatigue and how that kind of cost of caring comes up and what that looks like in in regards to this. Right. Um, you know, in response to that, uh, in the AARP study, I love this study that they just came out. They do something every five years where they really do a deep dive into the impacts of of caregiving. And they, the recent report says that 21% of care caregivers report a decrease in their health in this process. And so that's significant. That's one in five. And um, that's too many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, I'm sorry, I just lost what the question was that you okay, asked. Yeah, me. no. So talking about compassion fatigue and how that might show up for a caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. We talk, I, I, I do talk a lot about that and talk about what, what is happening when we're feeling burnt out and what is happening when we're feeling so exhausted and frustrated that we don't want to do anything. And it's because of this compassion fatigue that, that you start numbing out because it's hard to be with the suffering for that long. And so there's um, some teaching about, about the self, about self-compassion and you're in creating your own well-being your own physical bubble to be caring for yourself in that way and and the importance of breaks and burnout and because truthfully the average person spends 22.3 hours caregiving a week so no wow. wonder you're burnt out yeah and um mm. yeah exactly um and so we and I and we find and that's part of the reason I've created this group program because if you get so isolated in your own experience, there becomes this non-reality that this is happening everywhere. And when you hear someone talk about how difficult their experience is, you a get yourself validated, but you have compassion for them because you see their face, you see their story. Somehow we can understand how it impacts others. And not have that same reflection and kindness for ourselves. Um, so in the program, we'll talk about what are the warning signs in your body that you're approaching compassion fatigue and how another thing that is a big topic with, with caregivers um, is wanting to ask for help. We want to do it all ourselves because if I, if I really loved my person, then I should be able to do it all myself. Right. And that's not realistic. Mm -mm. (laughs) 
that's realistic for two weeks, maybe, but not for five, 10, 15 years. And so I think part of the answer to compassion fatigue is really asking for help and, mm-hmm. and doing that emotional process around, it doesn't mean that I'm a failure or a bad caregiver. It means that I am wanting to make sure that I am okay enough to be here for the long haul. Right. And I'm going to add, please, because I see this so much with, I, I think socially people think, well, the family should take care of them. We, we should do this. And I think there's a couple things at play. So I think the family doesn't look like what it looked like 50 years ago. Correct. 100 years ago, where families stayed in the same. So you might have your extended family all in that same area. And so aunts would come over and sit with your loved one, or your kids would feel like that's my role, right? I sit with my my grandparent or this loved one that's hurt. So I think it's also like noting our individualistic society here, at least in the U S is not very conducive to the family being the sole caregiving provider providers slash providers, because it's, it's just not the same. And also I think our systems, you know, set us up for a little bit for failure too. Like there's not great systems of care for caregiving that I've seen here in the U S maybe other countries are doing that a lot better where they're, you know, having some services to provide care for loved ones that might have dementia in the home or in-home care for folks after TBI, their initial recovery. Right, right. There's financial barriers to it there, including that, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago, uh, one household income could sustain a family. And that is really not the average case anymore. So, So we have to really negotiate what are is the cultural expectations versus what is the reality? Yeah. What is my, and this is part of what I like to work with caregivers are, is like, what is my actual capacity physically, mentally, financially, that is being realistic of where my life is. Am I also a parent at the same time? Am I a job? Am I taking care of my own mental health? So I, I need five hours a week at least to do yoga or whatever else it may be. And, and how do we slow down enough to recognize what is the cultural expectation from the, your family of origin, your your um, either your religious or culture also has different impacts of it. And what is what is realistic for me? So really redefining what is a good caregiver for each individual instead of it being coming from media is like, what does it mean for me to be a good caregiver? You know, Mm -hmm. if I'm consistently taking care of this loved one's finances and checking in and hiring help, then yeah, that counts. That is a good caregiver because you're not, not doing anything. You're taking care of, of the care. So it's a lot to navigate. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think our systems are set up (laughs) for us to fail. And with 54 million people, 40 of the 40 million of them aren't paid while they're doing this caregiving. And so, and that is the invisible web that is maintaining 
our well-being, definitely of our elders, definitely of our individuals with different disabilities and brain injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and so many, I'm just thinking of some sis- systems and things like that with uh, just no folks here in my state who are in caregiving and staffing now. So there's, <laughs> so there's new layers, I think, that we're definitely. bumping up against, but I mm-hmm. think... I say that not to like induce fear, but also just to normalize that this is a difficult process and that there are a number of things that make it difficult for an individual alone to be a primary caregiver for someone. Right. Yeah. It's not meant to be done alone. Really, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not doable. And so Mm -hmm. that's why our voices are out here and just reminding people that you don't have to do it alone, that there are other options. And as you said, unfortunately, we are bumping up with some changes in the caregiving community because the silver tsunami is hitting. Our boomers are getting to the age where they need more care. And Mm. COVID also really changed the game for caregivers, um, being able to have access to go visit a loved one in one of these residences changed with COVID. And so some people brought their loved ones home and now you're seeing an increase of those folks going back in (laughs) to these different living residences and, um, and the access to care. And unfortunately our, care providers, our paid professional care providers are really not getting paid enough either. No, and so they're it not. Makes it, <laughs> it makes it unsustainable for them, for these people who are really doing some really important and hard work. It's hard if they need to have two or three jobs, then like, of course they're coming exhausted. And so mm. I, I, I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> about about that but that is why i would the other part of me you and i shared a little bit about how we have a lot of of interest you know um you do so you lead some exercise classes yes. and, and other things and um the other part of me is is really wanting to educate the other professionals who interface with caregivers about the caregiving journey so that they have a deeper understanding of what is happening and so that we really can create a cultural shift so that when you go and tell your boss that I'm caring for someone with a TBI, they have a slight understanding of, of that demands that that might be 22 hours a week of care. And that of course you're going to check your phone more often at work than you would because you are communicating with professional caregivers or waiting for a phone call from a doctor, et cetera. And so how do we educate the general public more about this process so that caregivers can be supported in all different ways in in different corners. So I have created a professional competency in elder caregiving, and that is a course to be training to people more about the stage model and their own biases. And so that's for, that's for professionals. That is professionals. Yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, I'm sure you'll give me all those links that we can mm-hmm. link up all that stuff. So that's a great mm-hmm. resource. Yeah. Any other tips that you would give to a caregiver right now that on the top of your head, but if you had yeah. some, that's great. Um, I, I, we talked a little bit about this, but I think, um, 
we don't slow down enough to really talk about what the expectations are, both with the person who is receiving care and together as a, as a family, um, and really bringing that instead of assuming this is what the loved one expects of me, or this is what I'm supposed to do because the family believes that it's like, let's sit down and create a plan together. Let's, let's sit down and assess these needs and really be honest about the emotional piece as well, that we're all grieving. I, I wish that every family meeting you would stop and before you got into sort of the day-to-day task, who's doing what is like, let's just stop and recognize how hard this is for every one of us and look at each other and say, we're trying to figure this out together. Like how let's work together as a team and really honor that and then jump into (laughs) the logistics piece. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. So slowing down, kind of connecting together, like uh, sharing, sharing those difficulties, those hardships, acknowledging yeah. like the hard spots mm-hmm. in the day. And you had talked a bit about the nervous system re- uh, regulation. And um, I think that's really important. Learning what it is for each one of us is different. Learning what it is for each one of us that when I'm starting to feel my system rise, uh, whether that's anger or fear or sadness, what can I do to slow down, to take some deep breaths, to remember that it's right here. The other piece of advice is like, I want more people to be talking about death and who really are. It's a very taboo in our culture and it's, it's going to happen. So making some plans around it allowing it to be part of the conversation. So it doesn't feel like it's a shock or that we didn't know it was going to happen like this. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. that, that pre grieving can be very helpful. I think to the yes. family and to the individual too, Mm-hmm. of allowing for there to be just this, like sometimes in my sessions with TBI survivors, you know, I, I talk about a grief corner or when I do grief work in our yes. sessions, we'll have like, do we need to like, where's the grief corner? Where do we need to kind of explore there? So that could be like a whole new podcast on grief, which we could come back and, and talk about that too. I would love to do that and talk about anticipatory loss. And oh yeah. I'm, loss, I love it. Is- yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I talk all, often about ambiguous loss and mm-hmm. Pauline boss's work Yeah, regarding that. So mm-hmm. that'd be great. But I am mindful yeah. of our time. Unfortunately, we have to start wrapping yeah. up, but I great. will. Can I just say one more thing? Cause I want to leave on somewhat of a positive note. No. I, I, I have well, space for that. I will have space okay. for that. But I have a fun question before that. Okay. Okay, great. What is your favorite holiday and why? And who does it remind oh. you of? Oh, great question. Could be a so, food too. I ask I ask holiday slash food, but I'm sensitive to some people can't taste with a TBI. So <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. switch, switched it up a little bit. Yeah. So I grew up in a very liberal Jewish faith. And in the beginning of spring, there's a holiday called Tishbaav, and it's the, the tree's birthday. So you're go- supposed to go plant a tree, and you're supposed to eat things that grow on trees. And so I love it <laughs> because I love that holiday. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful question. Thank you for asking. What's yours? Oh, my 
favorite holiday probably has to be, I don't know. I, I do love Christmas. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to go with Christmas for sure. Yeah. Cause it's just, Great. it's very slow and mm-hmm. quiet typically after like all the craziness of presents. <laughs> mm-hmm. And right mm-hmm. now my kids are so happy. I think they're, they're just like the, to see a, a child have joy like that. Yeah. Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I celebrate, yeah, interestingly, I celebrated kind of different holidays growing up. I celebrated Hanukkah and Christmas. So we were, uh, we celebrated two, both holidays for a while. Ooh, busy, Gro- busy month. <laughs> I know. I loved, I loved actually having Hanukkah and Christmas. Mm-hmm. Both yeah. of them. I was like present yeah. every day and I get present <laughs> <laughs> as a child, as a child. Yeah. So, Okay. So yeah. what's what's one thing you'd like to leave with our listeners as we and, and then we'll say goodbye? Yeah, thank you. Um I I wanted to just say that fifty according to this study, that fifty-one percent of caregivers report having more meaning in their life by stepping into this role. And so I truly believe that being a caregiver is a place for personal growth. If you Mm. decide to be supported in it, you decide to really allow yourself to explore the impact it's having on you and growing into a more calm, compassionate, connected individual, then it can be a really meaningful experience. And so I want to invite our listeners, both those who have TBI, to invite their caregivers into that and also... um, any caregivers out there listening as well. Exciting. Exciting. Mm -hmm. So is there any place where people can reach out to you? Yes. So I have two websites. The first one is called supportivecaregivers.com. And that's where you learn about my consulting and the group program. And the and then another one called Professional Competency in Elder Caregiving. And that's the teaching for professionals out there. I am starting to grow my Instagram and it's at supportive caregivers. Um, and that's also on Facebook as well, but primarily Instagram is where, where I hang out. Awesome. Well, I will include that all of that in the show notes so people can reach out to you there. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you so much, Danielle. It was so wonderful. I know we'll connect. I'm not worried about yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Thank you for joining us today on the TBI Therapist Podcast. Please visit tbitherapist.com for more information on brain injury, concussion, and mental health. The information shared on today's podcast is intended to provide information, awareness, and discussion on the topic. It is not clinical or medical advice. If you need mental health or medical advice, please seek a professional. 